Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Aaron Philip Clark, author of the novel Under Color of Law. Crime writer James Salas wrote about Clark. T.S. Eliot referred to it as tradition and individual talent, the manner in which new work at once honors, builds upon, and questions what has come before. Chester Himes, Richard Wright, James Baldwin. Aaron Philip Clark has been paying attention. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your novel, Under Color of Law, how would you describe the novel? So I would describe it as, um, at, at the heart, it's a noir. Um, it's definitely a, a Los Angeles noir novel, but um, I think, you know, it's written from the standpoint of a young uh, rookie detective, a black detective with LAPD. And it is loosely uh, inspired by my experiences with LAPD. Um, and in this particular story, uh, my rookie detective, Trevor Finn Finnegan, who has a plethora of problems um, outside of <laughs> outside of being a police officer, but um, he is tasked with having to investigate the uh, murder of a of a young black uh, police recruit. And so that experience begins to highlight some of the experiences that he had as a recruit. And he really finds himself questioning why he joined the police department in the first place. But also the backdrop is set during a time of protest, during a time of uh, social unrest um, in Los Angeles and across the country. And so there's this in immense pressure that is put on Trevor to try and solve this crime um, because this kind of looming fear that the, the civil unrest may reach um, a critical point and the city uh, may kind of go back to the bad old days again. Um, you know, when we're talking about the 90s and we're talking about, you know, the 1992 uprising and Rodney King and and a lot of the things that were going on at that time. So it's a lot going on, a whole lot going on in, in the book. Uh, but I think it adds a, a wonderful layer um, of pressure for Trevor, who has to navigate uh, both his career and his personal life. And I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Under Color of Law? Sure. So at the time of it, I was going into the police department. Um, so Eric Gardner had uh, had been months, uh, about a couple of months before um, in, in New York City, Eric Gardner had been choked to death uh, by the, uh, the the street detectives there. And so... Um, you know, it was something that was kind of in the back of my mind. And as I was going into the police department um, and going and entering uh, training, you know, these were some of the questions that I had and, and some of my fellow recruits about situations like this. And we were told that that was not the place to have those discussions, that the academy was a place that should be neutral. Um, and that these discussions were somehow deemed political. 
um, which I, I fundamentally disagreed with. Um, <laughs> I think that was the, the place that you would want to talk about these things because people had a lot of questions, you know, what to do in those situations. Um, you know, where exactly was was the errors made that led to um, his death? And so um, when I was kind of thinking about that and I was going through the academy, I think it kind of just put it in the back of my mind. And I said, you know, one day I'm going to have to write about this. Um, I'm going to have to confront some of this because, um, you know, I realized that if, if I, I had been, I saw behind the curtain, I had been given the opportunity um, to kind of see how things operated. And it, seeing that made so much sense. Uh, once I saw that, I understood why certain things happen within police departments. I understood there were elements of this police culture that were incredibly detrimental. And even if you didn't fall in line with that, in order to survive, you kind of had to. And it kind of ended up taking you in um, as you went along. And, um, you know, ultimately, I didn't finish out with the academy. I, I got injured. Um, and at the time, I thought it was good. It was incredibly devastating. Um, and I had to go to rehab and I, I had a lot that I had to deal with. And I thought, man, this is just an incredible setback. But looking looking at it now, um, you know, now that it's in the rear view, I see that it actually was something I needed to go through to be um, to be able to write this 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 novel. Um, and, you know, I think Trevor in this book is just about as conflicted as I was at that time. Interesting. It's interesting that de-escalation be can be considered political. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. Do you think if you had made it through the Academy and become a, a, a working police officer that you would have continued to write? That was my hope. Uh, you know, a lot of, um, of the officers that I knew that were, that were budding writers are, are had plans to, to write were saying that it was something they would do after retirement. Um, and I had hoped that wasn't, wouldn't have been my situation. Uh, I, I would hope that, you know, I would have been able to balance the two, but I was starting to get the sense that you, the, the, the desire to write about those things um, began to kind of fade away because it was, so in your face and you dealt with it every day and it was so much in the forefront. And I think, you know, you think about like Joseph Wambaugh and, you know, and he was able to do it after he had spent years you know, yeah. on the, with the department and, and he was, he was able to look back. Um, and uh, I think it almost becomes a type of therapy to be able to um, process all those experiences. And I think when you're in it, it's not quite the same. I think you're so focused and you want to get as far when you're not working, you want to get as far away from <laughs> having to deal with <laughs> or think about any of that, um, you know. And so I think it probably would have I wouldn't say have it wouldn't have eliminate that desire to write. But I think it would have definitely diminished it until I was at a point where I would have been able to um, kind of revisit and, and, and explore some of those experiences. Sure. Well, what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing stories initially and getting your first novel published? Well, you know, I started as a screenwriter. So I, I was going to film school um, after high school. I got into uh, UNC School of Filmmaking. 
And I thought, okay, well, you know, I, I like film. I'll, I'll study this. And then I really, really fell in love with um, screenwriting. And I realized early on that if the story is not good, it doesn't matter how wonderful the cinematography is. It doesn't matter how, uh, you know, inept the acting is. It, 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 at the end of the day, it all boiled down to, um, to the story. It all boiled down to the writing. I mean, you could have a wonderful film or you could have a terrible looking film. It, it, it didn't matter. Or you could have horrible actors, but if there was something there, um, something that was saying something to the audience, um, I realized that that counted for so much because I had, I watched tons of terrible student films and, you know, the writing was just, you know, there was times where I was just like, you know, this is just, this was a waste of someone's thesis budget. Like the, they just didn't focus on the writing and they didn't get that right. They were so focused on everything else. Um, and so from there, um, you know, I decided, okay, well, if I'm really going to try and be a screenwriter, I'm going to have to leave North Carolina at that time. Um, and I decided to, to come back to Los Angeles where I had grown up. And um, I went to uh, Art Center uh, College of Design for a little bit. And I still wasn't finding what I was looking for. I still wasn't getting this sort of education and trial by fire and in, in, in terms of the writing. And so I found a program um, that only focused on that. It was actually modeled after NYU's um, writing program. Um, and it was at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. And so I, I went to school there and I finished up. And that's where I really got what I was looking for, just in terms of delving so deep into um, story and really understanding how, how story worked. And so I realized at that point that that's what I wanted to do. And um, I wanted to learn all facets of storytelling. And so I decided to get my MFA in creative writing uh, from Otis College uh, here in Los Angeles. And um, I graduated from from there and uh, officially graduated in, in 2010. I was done with classes in 2008. Um, but I had pretty much finished the, the first novel, The Science of Paul. And um, I was lucky enough that uh, Jim Salas, uh, who was, you know, the ride, uh, drive and, and driven and, and, um, he's written wonderful noirs, um, quite a few, um, uh, quite a few books, um, and standalones, but, um, you know, I was lucky enough that, uh, I was able to get him on my thesis board. And so he read my book and, and he really connected to it. And I think that was the push that I needed. Um, just kind of that push and confidence to say, Hey, you're on to something, um, that this is, you know, that there's that, you know, I have some talent and, and I should keep pursuing it, you know? Um, and so that's kind of what happened after that, after the science of Paul was published, um, I just kept going and I, I wrote the, uh, follow-up to that book. And then I wrote a standalone and, um, I wrote a few short stories and then I moved on to, uh, under color of law after, a few years after I got out of the police academy. Well, it's my understanding as well that you have a new Trevor novel coming out in November. Can you tell us about that? I do. So the follow-up to Under Color of Law is entitled Blue Like Me. And it picks up about uh, about three years, four years um, after the events in Under Color of Law. And the what... And not to give a whole lot away for those who haven't read Under Color of Law, but by the time that book ends, it's very clear that Trevor's not going to be able to 
be a police officer anytime soon. And so he decides to become a private investigator for the civil rights attorney uh, who has set up kind of a tip line for people who would who don't feel comfortable reporting on police to the actual departments, but are sending tips and sending, um, you know, emails and things saying, hey, there's this officer and he's doing this and are, you know, I, I, I don't think it's right. And so Trevor essentially kind of investigates these things. And so um, in order to kind of stay afloat, though, he also takes on regular cases um, uh, where people actually pay, where the clients pay. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, his role kind of changes and he's trying to make amends for some of the, the as he sees it, the shortcomings and some of the wrong that he did while he was wearing the badge. And he thinks this is, this is kind of the only way to do it. Like in the book, he says, this is his albatross. Um, and if he can um, makes a difference, then maybe the things that happen in under color of law won't happen again. And he truly believes this. He becomes, you know, very invested in this idea. And so um, he ends up surveilling uh, two undercover, two narcotics uh, investigators who are undercover and he witnesses the murder of one of them. And so he goes from uh, private eye to eyewitness very quickly. And one of those detectives is his former partner who he is now tasked with investigating because she may be, she may be corrupt. She may be dirty. And so he has to kind of play both sides because he's hoping that she's not the one who, who is dirty. He's hoping that maybe it was the partner who, ultimately gets gets shot in Venice Beach um, and dies and that maybe his part his former partner um, Sally Mew knows maybe she was just kind of along for the ride and so the book is very much about these toxic relationships that form um, and they form and I saw them while I was while I was in training this kind of hive mentality this idea that well if my partner's doing it I guess I should do it um, but does it really reflect who these individuals are, or is it the environment that sends them on this particular path? Um, and so it's very much an exploration in that. And, and Paul, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, and, and Trevor uh, finds himself uh, in the midst of this and in some ways trying to save Sally, um, believing that he got lucky um, and that he escaped um, prosecution. Um, and if he can kind of do that for Sally, that she'll get right back on the, she'll get back on the, you know, on the right track and that he can kind of turn her, her, her career around and, um, get her to, to see that it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of his, his mission. And of course, because it's noir, all that goes haywire. <laughs> when you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, the the frame of him working for the civil rights uh, attorney that's 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 great. Uh, uh, that's a great frame for uh, an ongoing series. If it turns out that way, that's the hope. I mean, I, <laughs> I you know, I, I I don't know. I don't know if, if Trevor will go as long as like Easy Rollins. Um, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, I, I I just I don't know because he gets in so many uh, serious situations that I'm thinking. You know, for him to survive, kind of what I have in mind for him is right. going to be is going to be tricky. And and you know, it, I see it more as like a five book, uh, right? Possibly like a five book series, uh, but we'll see. I don't know. Thing you yeah. know, things change. I mean, Walter, you know, kind of semi killed off Easy Rollins and then brought him back. So you you know, you never know. Yeah. Um. So, but yeah, I mean, that's 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 the idea, and I think the um. A lot of the the cases that Trevor is going to um, have to contend with um, oftentimes are going to be cases that connect to him in some way, uh, maybe not directly, um, but it's going to bring up something about his past. So every case has this almost like a gravitational pull, like it finds him um, and it's it's perfectly fitted to explore more character aspects. Um, and so as we kind of delve deeper into Trevor and we learn more about his upbringing and more about what led him to be a police officer, we also start to understand him much more and hopefully people will root for him more. I mean, this is more of a, um, he doesn't start as a hero. This is more of what it takes to become a hero. And that's what I was very much interested in um not so much you know the character who starts out at the beginning is you know this kind of (laughs) hardcore you know bad dude who does the right thing (laughs) and might have this this you know questionable code but he's always on the right side of the law well that's that's not who trevor is i mean trevor you know is a rookie detective who made quite a few mistakes um and ultimately grew from that and as he progresses you know, I hope that he will kind of solidify, be able to solidify himself as this as this hero in a world and in a city that is in desperate need of them. 
That's great. Well, I know that you had said earlier that you um, wrote screenplays pl- and um, uh, screenwriting, and I'm curious how did how did working on those impact your your working on a novel? Because those tend to be very lean and structured. Do you do you feel like that kind of um, emphasis on plot and dialogue impacted you as you started working on novels? I do. I think the. One of the greatest lessons that I received from screenwriting was the three-act structure. And while we don't always think about it in terms of novels, it still exists. And being able to plot out a story is an incredible skill because not only does it save you a lot of time (laughs) and you don't write yourself maybe into a whole lot of corners, Mm -hmm. But I think it helps just in terms of delivering honest, um, realistic twists and plot points that only further deepen the story and push the character forward. And that's something that we worked very much on when I was studying screenwriting. And I think it's it served me well. Now, when we talk about dialogue, that's, that's a, a prime example. And even prose, because within a screenplay, you know, everything has to be very sharp and you find ways to really exp- uh, explore the economy of writing um, and really kind of exploit that um, because you don't have a whole lot of room uh, just in terms of being able to give a lot of descriptions and things like that. So noir writing and screenwriting are very much uh, similar in that in that respect. Um, but when it comes to dialogue, being able to provide subtext. And I think sometimes I've read novels where I've, everything has been to an extent when I'm reading the dialogue. Um, and, and it's tricky, right? Because especially if you're talking about a plot heavy book, the dialogue really has to be there to serve the, the plot. But I, I try, at least when I write to try and have this balance. So I like to have the subtext. Um, and I've read books where I've been like, oh, there's, I know exactly how these people feel because there's, there's no subtext here. They're, they're talking about exactly what's going on. Um, and I think sometimes that's necessary, right? Especially when we're dealing with exposition. But I, I, where I really get enjoyment is being able to have two characters in this, this verbal boxing match. And they're talking about one thing, but it's very, very clear that there's something else going on. Um, and I, and, and I just love those sorts of exchanges. And that's something that screenwriting really, really depends on. Um, and I think that's something that if you're able to do that in a book, I think those scenes become even more rich. That's great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Uh, first tip is to keep going, you know, um, I have feelings about MFA programs. <laughs> I think they offer, um, they offer, a, a, they can offer a, a nice environment, a nice, should be nice, safe environment where you can kind of explore and for lack of a better phrase, find your voice. Um, but it also can be an environment that can shake your confidence and fit and, and, simply because people may not understand what you're attempting to do or might not even like that you're writing genre fiction. A lot of people just want to write the great American novel and, you know, genre fiction gets a bad rap sometimes. Um, But we owe a lot to it and literature owes quite a bit to it. But, you know, I would say, you know, 
once you find a story that you believe in, you can't be deterred. You can't let anyone tell you it's not going to work. Um, and you just have to keep going and accept that that story may go through multiple revisions and it may take you years to write to get to the point where you really say, okay, this is ready. I need to take this to an agent or I, I, I need this to go out. Um, but you have to have patience and you have to just believe in what you're doing. Um, and I think that it took me a little while to get there coming from screenwriting into fiction because I had this a screenwriter's mentality um, that I thought, okay, well, you know, I'll write this script and I gotta, I, I'll get it out there and, and I'll find a producer and, you know, you need all these other moving parts to get that thing on the screen. But when it comes to fiction, it's just you. It's you and maybe later an editor or a team of editors. But at the end of the day, it's you, you, you know, your keyboard, whatever you're writing on, your typewriter, and it's your imagination. And it's a freedom in that. It's a freedom in that that doesn't exist in screenwriting. And I think that, um, you know, for me, just knowing that, I just kept going because I said, well, this is all boils down to me. It, it doesn't have anything to do with making this thing commercially viable or this, that, and the other, because I need someone to turn it into a movie or a TV show. At the end of the day, I'm writing this book and if push comes to shove and no one has is interested in it, then I'll find an indie press or I'll self-publish. But at the end of the day, it's me, my story, and I'm the one who's responsible for what happens to it. Um, and so when I got that, when I really got that message, I was like, oh, you know, there's, there's, I was, I didn't feel stressed about, about writing and publishing anymore because it was my story. And if I decided to print the thing on teletype paper and sell it out the trunk of my car, I could do that, <laughs> you know? <Yep. laughs> so, you know, once that kind of clicked for me, um, you know, my, my, um, how I looked at writing changed, my perception changed. Well, I'm curious, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Ooh, recently. So right now I'm reading Heat 2, which I absolutely, absolutely love. Um, and uh, prior to that, hold on, I have, to, <laughs> I have to take a look at my bookshelf here because I have a whole, a whole kind of a list here. Um, but uh, prior to that, so I was finishing up uh, some Ross McDonald um, uh, novels. I was kind of on that kick. So I was looking at, I was finishing up the, uh, the moving target because I really like how Ross McDonald delved into the psychological aspects of, of crime and the impacts on, on the victims and then also the perpetrators. And um, I also was reading a lot of Hemingway. And so those are the two things that are kind of at the front of my... <laughs> my uh my bookshelf uh right now um and and sometimes it depends what i'm what i'm working on so if i'm i'm writing a um a particular uh novel and i think hey there's this other novel that did something really well i'll kind of go back and reread that uh prime example so my current work in progress um is a uh it's inspired by Patricia Highsmith, who I'm a huge fan of. And so um, I went back and I read The Talented Mr. Ripley because this particular novel is set in the music industry, but it has a very Ripley-esque type character um, who is this uh, sociopath. And 
um, finds himself in a in a situation that he can exploit for fame. And he doesn't really care who gets hurt in the process. Um, but he doesn't start out as a bad guy. It's something that slowly kind of happens um, as he becomes, uh, finds more success in the music industry. And so, you know, Ripley is incredibly likable, right? Like that's one of the things that Patricia Highsmith did so well is that, you know, you find yourself rooting for this character who does these like <laughs> very despicable things, you know, but at the same time, you're like, well, it's charismatic, likable, and, and he's smart. So you appreciate all these like, you know, very positive traits. And so I, I was really taken by that. And I wanted to create a character who can elicit sympathy, but at the same time, um, when his hand is forced, you know, can do these very terrible things. Um, and I wanted to add a little extra to it. And so what happens is in the book, there's actually two sociopaths and there's kind of, they're kind of dueling within the, <laughs> within the storyline. And um, they're kind of trying to run up, one up each other uh, constantly and get the, get the upper hand. Um, and so, you know, it's almost like, well, who do you root for if they're both kind of, diabolical you know that's great well where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels sure so my website is aaronphilipclark.com and then my social media handle for instagram and twitter is at underscore write me a world and then you could also find me on facebook at aaron philip clark uh our author aaron philip clark um and you can just search that and you and i should pop up that's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Aaron Philip Clark, author of the novel Under Color of Law. As we discussed, his next novel, Blue Like Me, will be published in November, and you can pre-order that now. So go check the, the novels out. And Aaron, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you, Jeff. This has been great. Great. Wonderful. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.